The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to the 2022 version. Happy New Year. A brutal nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and right across from me is the one and the only. The looking very dapper today. Miss Tammy the Sasquatch Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Hi, everybody. I am so dizzy. And it's not because I'm blonde. Lower in my. Sorry. Is that better? I don't know. Who fucking knows? I know. You always yell at me about my mic. So. (laughs) Because you don't talk into it. (laughs) We're teaching her mic discipline this week. Bite my ass, Scott. That's a big job. No. (laughs) I love that look. And that's how Scott died. <laughs> this is exactly how Scott died. So we're recording the day after New Year's right now for this entire week. Yeah. I did nothing. I fucking worked on New Year's Eve. So did I. And then went to bed. Okay. And I woke up with my cat. That, that was it. That's... You woke up with your cat? Yeah. No, not in like that kinky weird ass way. Uh-huh. No, nah, she sleeps next to me every night. I know. She woke up. She said, good morning, sunshine. I said, make me breakfast. She said, fuck off. Yeah, typical cat thing. <laughs> I just Earn your keep. Go make me some breakfast. That's all there is. Fuck, man. Okay. Feed you well enough, motherfucker. Oh, uh, no shit, yo. All right, so today you gave me just one that I think is beautiful. Yeah, his name is Dr. Thomas Neil Cream. <laughs> I'm still cracking up at his name. Yeah. So he became known throughout history, especially in Great Britain, as the Lambeth Poisoner. Um, He is another doctor from the Victorian era, but I kind of have a reason for featuring him now. Um, There's a spin towards the end of my presentation that's going to have Arsenio Hall returning with the dog pound because of those things that make you go, hmm, remember that? Vaguely. Ah, come on. Uh, lots of drugs, man. I can't remember uh, jack shit. So wait a minute, when you say Victorian, is he like out of England or is he here in the U.S.? He was in the U.S., Canada, and England. Oh, goddamn. He like moved around yeah. to kill or not to kill. He was that's a, just a question. He was of Scottish-Canadian heritage. Oh, that's his problem right there. Yeah. Being from Canada. <laughs> a. A. Okay, now, to avoid... Yours sarcastic comments throughout the entire presentation. I'm going to refer to the killer as Thomas and not his last name. You should call him the creamy doctor. No, dude. <laughs> that is not happening. Dr. Cream Malicious? No. Um, Dr. Cream Machines? Are you done? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, he looks so good at creamed everywhere. Grease lightning. Boom, 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 boom. We didn't say he was greasy. Greasy cream is disgusting. That's called spoiled milk, man. No, I was like, go shit. grease lightning, burning up the quarter. I can't remember it all right now. <laughs> Let's see here. Thomas was of Scottish Canadian heritage, and it's believed that the first few victims he's known to have murdered were while he was in the United States. Um, the remaining known victims were from Great Britain. However, it's believed that he murdered some people in Canada as well. Damn. Yeah. 
Which is fucked up, because honestly, like, here in the U.S., we're kind of assholes. Oh, yeah. And in England, I've ran into, like, a lot of assholes. No offense to you guys, just a lot of you are assholes. In Canada, though, like, barring my ex-wife, um, most of the people, like, everybody I've met there is, like, it's... Super nice? It's super over-the-top, fucking really sweet, nice people. Why the fuck are you killing Canadians, dude? Yeah, Dick. eh? You fucking peckerhead. Don't be yeah. messing with Canadians. They, they are. I mean, like, everybody, like, every that I've gone and seen up there and, uh, and, and dealt with up there, there's been really, really great, nice people, for the most part. I mean, yeah, there probably are one or two assholes there, but I haven't met them. I lost myself for a second there in my yeah, thoughts. Yeah, you looked like you fell asleep. No, I something. was like in my thoughts, and I, I don't know. I'm just, I told you I feel weird. Um, now, I didn't believe tell it, you, so I can't tell you if you feel weird or not. You're so dumb. Um, believe it or not, um, I'm actually going to begin Thomas's story from as far back as I can, considering he was born in the mid-1800s. It was like 1850-something, I think. Oh, 1850, exactly. <laughs> Uh, you can imagine how little information I was truly able to find uh, about his upbringing. However, I have done my best to piece it together as much as I can. Picture this. Scotland, 1850. <laughs> the Golden Girls reference. I know. I know. You know what? We yeah, need a moment of that. silence for Betty White. Yeah, Betty White died on New Year's Day. Or was it yeah. New Year's Eve? I think it was New Year's Eve. Friday. New Year's Eve. Yeah. It was actually really sad, and I actually found a meme that I posted to my Facebook, mm-hmm. my, my personal Facebook, with the line that I told you from Lake Placid, where she's looking at uh, one of the sheriffs, and she goes, this is the part, if I had a dick, I'd tell you to suck it. <laughs> my favorite line out of every movie I've ever seen, that is my favorite line out of all of them. Really? <laughs> Oh, fuck it. It's fucking hilarious. This, I can't even imagine Betty White talking like that. Well, she's so nice to the cops during that movie, right? I mean, oh, she, yeah. I mean, she, she's still being a dick, but she's got this really nice voice going on. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, the main sheriff tells one of the deputies, okay, you need to stay with her and blah, blah, blah. And she, yeah, she's telling him how he, she hopes that uh, the alligator eats all of his friends and shit. Just really nice. I hope he eats them all. Like, you too. This is the part, if I had a dick, I'd tell you to suck it. That's, that's fucking, I was dying. I, I, every time I watch that movie, I rewind it to watch it, that part again because it's fucking hilarious. You're so dumb. I, like, takes, put it on repeat. Um, it takes so little to entertain me. Well, like what we were saying earlier, then we'll get back on track, is uh, I was checking out where the new studio is mm-hmm. that we're going to be practicing at and uh, the, the place that we're going to be renting. And my son actually said, this is, because it's in a really sketchy part of Portland. Um, he says, this is a place where you'd be afraid that your tires are going to catch tetanus. <laughs> <laughs> I damn near I'm had to pull you. over. I was dying. Yeah. I mean, it's always a sad day when your car gets, gets diseased. <laughs> so you go, it's, it's almost like some junker car is going to come up behind yours with a piece of rusty rebar and stab your tires. Go, ah, you get tetanus and run away. <laughs> I've stepped on rusty nails in cow manure before. I mean, literally, because, you know, lived on an active dairy farm. Because you're feeding your cows rusty nails? That's no. Because one of the boards came off the fence, and I went to go I went to go do something, and I didn't see day? the board laying there with a um, nail sticking out of it. Oh. And I stepped down, and, I mean, it would, like, put my full weight on it, and it was like, oh, hurt. Especially with cow poop in your fucking wounds. I know, right through my rubber boots. 
That's a shitty way to be bored. You, you like are dumb as fuck. I worked them both together. You like you that? You did, yeah. kind of. <laughs> okay, so the year was 1850, and the month was May. It was actually May 27th when Thomas Cream, Neil Cream, was born in Glasgow, Scotland. It was a bright and sunny day on the lock. Yeah, well. Yes, they came up to say hi. He was the oldest of eight children. Jesus Christ, dude. Tell your mom to close her legs. Does she not know how that shit happens? <laughs> I know. Fuck. Um, the family emigrated to Quebec City, Canada when uh, Thomas was only four years old. He received a private education at an academy that has since closed its doors. So it's safe to say that his family was financially stable for the time period. Okay? Because of the look. Look. And um, Stop it. After completing high school, dang it, I spilled water on me. I'm just not having a good day. Um, after completing high school, Thomas went to get a higher education at McGill University, located in Montreal. While he was obtaining an education in medicine, some believe he'd already embarked on his shady lifestyle. Um, according to some reports, Thomas either needed money or wanted more than what he was getting from his family. That's when he allegedly started a fire where he was residing. He managed to collect approximately $350 from the insurance settlement. Although $350 doesn't sound like a whole lot. Let me break it down. Um, that was in 1850. So if it was U.S. dollars. Um, hang on, where'd it go? Oh, um, if it was in U.S. dollars in 1875, is equivalent to $8,599 today. That's still not a whole hell of a lot of money. Yeah. But I can understand why he why he did it. Right. Coats cost money. Right. And if it was actually Canadian dollars, it would be worth $10,868. Yeah, but in American dollars, if you translate... Canadian into U.S., like $8,000 there is like worth, I don't know, two cents in a fucking bag of farts or something. Two pieces in a biscuit? Yeah, pretty much. No, it's, it's, it's usually like it runs 75 cents on the dollar in the transfer rate. Right, right, right. Um, prior to graduating with honors, Thomas wrote his thesis and dissertation on the chemical chloroform. Um, upon graduating in 1876, he received his MDCM, and he would complete his postgraduate training in London, but I'll get to that in a minute. Is that like a run DMC? No, I'm going to explain it. Oh, okay. You I gave go, me a whole, side note. You gave me a whole bunch of fucking letters there. He got his A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, and I'm like, that's too many letters, okay? And then that made sense. Fucking explain this shit to me because I'm half retarded. Kind of are. Um, anyways, side note, McGill University Faculty of Medicine, where Thomas received his education, is the only Canadian medical school that awards the MDCM. It's the Latin for, I can't even say it, Medicine Doctorum et, I can't, something Magistrum. You just summons the demon. <laughs> I know. In my front room. Which, a little scared. Yeah, which translates to Doctor of Medicine and Master of Surgery. No, that translates into that's some Harry Potter shit going on. And uh, all you need is a magic wand and fucking start waving it. That's what that is. 
The fucking opening portals to yeah. new dimensions. Even with the degree saying that he was a master of surgery, he still had... To, Canadian doctors are required to enter a residency program to get full cre- credentials. Well, that makes sense. You would think that makes the most sense. <sighs> you okay over there? No, I keep spilling water on myself. I just looked over there. Goddamn wet tits. I know. It's... I, I don't know what's going on with me. I'm going to have to give you one of my shirts before we finish up recording shit. You're going to bow them over there ready to drown. The same year Thomas... You lifesaver? Shut up. The same year Thomas graduated from McGill, he was forced to marry young Fiona... No, Flora Brooks. Apparently, Flora's father found out that Thomas had gotten his daughter pregnant, so he forced the two to have a literal shotgun wedding. Well, when you say young, like how young are we talking? Are we talking like she 11 was, or are we talking no, like of adult age? No, we're... We're talking late teens. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I can, I can um, that. I, when, when you say young, in my head, I seriously, I think of like, you know, like 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, something like that. I don't think like 16, 17, 18. Yeah. And on up. So I'm like, um, that's fucked up. And somebody should have shot him in the dick. But yeah, because, okay. well, the, my group that I'm featuring on Tuesday, it's going to be a two-parter, but damn, Gina. Um... I barely let you finish this up because we got a short amount of time before we got to go and get me tortured. It's 1030. Okay. Anyways, later, um, Thomas performed an abortion on Florida to get rid of the baby, and she almost died in the process. And remember, back then, abortion was illegal no matter where you were. Yeah, because they didn't have shop All facts. All over the world. Huh? Because they didn't have shop facts back then. You couldn't just plug it in and, what? Isn't get a how- DNC. Ugh. <laughs> What, you like put a egg whisk up there? No, a DNC is where they go in and like flush out your uterus and, yeah. Like a turlet? Kind of a little bit. I don't know. I can't remember what they did for me to get my DNC. God dang, that's some NASCAR shit going on there. All right. <laughs> Anywho. Um, let's see here. After recovering from the near-fatal procedure, Flora did pass away the following year. Her death certificate states that her cause of death was attributed to consumption or tuberculosis. Right. However, there were some that believed the fine young doctor was responsible since she died under suspicious circumstances. Um, As I mentioned a little bit ago, Thomas went to London to complete his postgraduate training. Um, he finished the program at St. Thomas's Hospital Medical School in 1878. Can I throw something in there? Uh-huh. In, in, in the great cream of the crop, Thomas's defense, it is sometimes cheaper to kill him than divorce him. Just saying. I, I used might, to love her. I might have some experience in that shit. <laughs> what? <laughs> Divorcing or killing? <laughs> no, di- no. I was just say all I your ex wives are alive, right? So, go on with your story. <laughs> <laughs> so far. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Yeah. At least D- one of them is. During the two year postgraduate training program, Thomas was able to obtain two additional medical qualifications. By the time he returned to North America, he was a certified physician and a certified surgeon. Yeah. Sweet. No. Okay. Anyways, upon returning to North America after his residency, Thomas settled for a brief 
period of time in the Midwest. He established a private practice in Des Moines, Iowa. Des Moines. Oh, I know where Des Moines is. I've been I do there many too. Time. I do too. I was born in Haywarden, which is more north, but whatever. Yeah, I kind of know where that one is too. You know I'm where Haywarden is? I do. It's a tiny town. It's a nothing town. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. The fucking there was a hospital Haywarden. way back in the day. I don't know if it's still open because I was born there. It was a little shack is what it was with an outhouse outside on the prairie. <laughs> Laura Ingalls came out with her bonnet on. That's what happened. Do you know my mom's? Uh, the sister of hers that's like right above her age-wise, I, like barely a year apart. Um, she, what was I going to say? <laughs> Lost your train of twat? Yeah, I kind of did. Damn it. Now, nah, whatever. Um, let's see. When he found out the growing... Okay, uh, he settled in Des Moines and opened a private practice when he found out that the growing community was desperate need of a local physician. Um, however, his stay there was limited before he returned to Canada and opened a practice in London, Ontario. Oh. Yeah. All right. No, all right. So almost as soon as Thomas hung his shingle at his new medical practice... Wait, he had shingles? No. That's horrible, They man. call them shingles. It's like, okay, I'm just fucking with you. I thought you were being a dick for real. No, I'm always a dick. <laughs> you act like that comes as a surprise to you. It doesn't, but every once in a while, I hope for the best. No, don't hope do that. Hope for the best, expect the worst. Yeah, pretty much. I'm always <laughs> an asshole. Yeah. Um, he be, okay, so it's almost as soon as he hung his shingle up to announce his new practice... He began having an illicit affair with a lady by the name of Kate Gardner. See, okay, I'm going to stop you right there because they always say, he's having an illicit affair. The dude's just trying to fucking get laid. Yeah. We don't say that in these times. Like, seriously, nobody sits there and goes, hey, who are you dating? Margaret, he's having an illicit affair with Margaret. Dude's just trying to get himself some. I relate <laughs> to that because pussy is magical. Magical. Not always. I drove by your statue the other day. <laughs> the vagina statue? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so um, within a year, in 1879, her body was discovered inside a shed that was located behind his Thomas's medical office. She was obviously pregnant, and her cause of death was the result of chloroform poisoning. Yeah. So when Kate's body was found, law enforcement officials began questioning Thomas about his potential involvement. However, he consistently maintained that Kate had gotten impregnated by a prominent businessman from the area. He also told them that she had come to him and requested that he abort the baby. And according to his statement, he told her that he wouldn't perform the abortion. So she committed suicide instead. Yeah. Yeah, that's what happened. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. I can believe that. Yeah. I'm just kind of, I'm already seeing a pattern. Um, me too. Me too. But, but in, in his defense, just wait. In his defense, if he did do it, like OJ, um, <laughs> kids are expensive, man. And Robert Blake. And Robert. Hypothetically, if they really did do it, because they, you know, were you know they did. <laughs> hypothetically. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. Um, while the authorities were still conducting their investigation, Thomas fled Canada and settled in Chicago. 
Um, once he arrived in Chicago, he established his new practice in the vicinity of the city's red light district. Um, he quickly became... Did he know Roxanne? I don't know. <laughs> he quickly became the go-to doctor when the local prostitutes were seeking to obtain an illegal abortion. Considering he was essentially trying to escape the attention of the authorities in Canada, you'd think he'd keep his head down when he got to Chicago. They never do. Never. Like, like, like Holmes. H.H. <laughs> H. Holmes. All of them. All, every single doctor that we've had, mm-hmm. every single one of them that have been up to nefarious shit. Are cocky motherfuckers. They come right out like... No, no, it wasn't me. No, I know I know. there's 30 dead bodies in my living room, and you caught me with the blood everywhere, including on myself. No, they'll never get me. It's fine. Yeah. No, come on in, cops. No, walk past yeah. those bodies. You don't even see those. See, and that's the weird thing is I have noticed that our doctors that we feature are cocky and arrogant, and they think that they, you know, are smarter than everybody. But the nurses and shit that we feature, not so much. Sometimes, Nurse, but not as nurses much. nurses are fucking amazing. Most of the time, they're looking around like... Okay, this asshole needs to die. I need to be low-key about this shit. How can I kill this little fucking asshole? Not doctors. They go right in. They'll walk by other doctors like, hey, you know Mike over in uh, room number three, a dickhead who's screaming all the time? I killed that motherfucker. I'm going to go get some coffee. You want anything? Donut? Anything? I'm going to just go. (laughs) I'm not going to put arsenic in it. Promise. Yeah, no, it wasn't arsenic this time here. Or insulin. Yeah. Yeah. No, um... However, as is the case with a lot of our medical serial killers, Thomas must have thought he was smarter than everyone else. Or perhaps he thought he was untouchable. Either way, it wasn't long before he drew the attention of law enforcement in Chicago. Um, He was practicing medicine at 434 West Madison Street. Um... And a short time after opening his doors there, he made the acquaintance of a local African-American nurse by the name of Hattie Mackey. You sure it wasn't like Shaniqua Johnson? It's Hattie Mackey. That's actually a cool name, so I like that one. I know. I like like Mackey, too. Um, Hattie was married with three children living in an apartment on the upper level of a house located at 1056 West Madison Street. So just right down the road. Oh, cool. So she could, like, walk to work and yell at her kids out the window. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, cool. The lower level was the residence of George Green and his family, and the garret or attic room was occupied by a single woman named Miss Ellen Hackle. Now, it's... Don't get your hackles up. (laughs) At some point, George and Miss Ellen began to notice that Hattie had taken in a new board, you know, border. Um... They described the new dweller as a mysterious, quote, mysterious somebody in the shape of a pretty, in the shape of a pretty and ladylike and quite delicate looking young white woman. That's me. Yeah, it is you. I'm delicate. Not long after that, though, they became aware that Thomas was visiting the uh, pretty white woman approximately three times a day. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. You go, boy. Yeah. After a while, George... And Miss Ellen grew even more suspicious of the doctor, even though they described him as follows, quote, in appearance, the doctor is a highly intelligent Scotsman um, of easy address, is of medium build with brown hair and blue eyes. He wears his beard in the Burnside fashion, 
closely trimmed. And he's got a kilt. But we don't know if he's wearing underwear underneath it. <laughs> Continue on, Tommy. Whatever, dude. Me me and Nessie over here, the white beast. We're, we're I'm getting you a kilt. I won't wear any underwear, and then I'm going to sit on your mom's lap. No. No, you won't. Dragon nuts. You're sick fucker. I'm going to puke for real. Um, apparently, George... Um, oh, I already said that. Oh, no. Apparently, George and Miss Ellen thought that Thomas's frequent visits were suspicious because when he arrived, he always had a bunch of packages they described as being suspicious in nature. And this was printed in an article... That what I'm going to read next was printed in an article in the Chicago Tribune at the time. Towards 4 p.m. on Friday morning, an unusual noise on Mrs. Hackey, Mrs. Mackey's floor aroused Mr. Green, who arising saw Mrs. Mackey leave the house together with her children. In the afternoon, he went up to the second floor and found the door to the rooms locked. A horrible stench. Soon afterward, began to pervade the room, and Mr. Green reported this occurrence to Lieutenant Seal of the Westlake Street substation, who broke in the door of Mrs. Mackey's rooms where the decomposing remains of the mysterious border were found lying upon a bed and presented a sight which, combined with the odor, beat the uh, beat the officers back and forced them to rush for the open air. See, and I'm reading it exactly how they wrote it because, you know, back then they spoke weird English. We speak weird English now. And no, we don't. Yeah, yeah, we do. They say American English is the hardest language to learn. It is. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Because in every other language you have uh, male and female Right, right. Well, and, and yeah, and dominant, and you know, you don't have so many silent letters either. Yeah, no shit, man. I say quit using silent letters and save some money to save babies. I know. Feed, well, feed the children with that shit. There's a one of my favorite uh, episodes of I Love Lucy was she's saying that they have to get better educated for their son when she was pregnant, you know, because she didn't want him to be dumb, and so um, she's trying to teach Ricky how to read a really um, advanced book, and he says, it was cough, though, and bow, which are all, you know, the O-U-G-H's, uh-huh. right? And so he kept trying to pronounce them, you know, like the first one, you know, I think it was thought or something like that. And so he was like, you know, he started pronouncing it that way. She goes, no, it's this. And he goes, that makes no sense. It doesn't. <laughs> Our language makes absolutely no fucking yeah, sense at all. None. And we, I mean, and we have appropriated certain words too. You know what I mean? Made them ours. Um, okay. A search of the premises revealed the fact that the unfortunate woman's name was Mary Ann Matilda Faulkner. And that she came originally from Ottawa, the capital of the Dominion of Canada. Um, When Lieutenant Steele interviewed um, George and Miss Ellen, they gave him a description of Thomas. 
And a little while later, uh, they found him at White Brothers Drugstore, which was located at the corner of Hyone and Madison Street. That's when they placed Thomas under arrest. Um, when Steele arrested Thomas at the druggist or pharmacy, he discovered a note had been left at the establishment. The note was written to Thomas from Hattie in which she told him Mary Ann had died and she was hightailing it out of town. However, she didn't make it very far. She found herself under arrest as well and lodged in a cell adjoining her alleged accomplice. Next on the next episode of Cops. I know, right? <laughs> I'm telling you. Where is it? There we go. Um, during her interrogation, Hattie admitted that she and Thomas had become acquainted with each other when he had provided her with an abortion. She had a balance. She had still owed him a balance of $15. So when he came to her and asked her to put up Mary Ann, she agreed to the request in an effort to make things even with the doctor. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah. So Hattie went on to say that Mary Ann claimed she was abandoned by her husband when he discovered she was pregnant. Um, apparently, Mary Ann was bound and determined to have an abortion as giving birth to a child would most definitely be an impediment to her impediment. I don't know. Impediment's correct. I know. To impede. <laughs> to impede. I feel like I'm to talking impede. to my mother again. I didn't impede my pants. What do you want? I mean, Whatever, dude. Look, I'm a big boy now. I didn't impede my pants. I'm a big boy now. I am. Anyways, according to Hattie, Marianne was referred to Thomas by another doctor because Thomas was willing to perform illegal abortions. Um, Hattie's statement alleged that Thomas arrived at her residence on Thursday, August 12th, and he had brought with him a multitude of medical instruments that he would need in order to perform the abortion procedure on Mary Ann. Now, um... Hattie always maintained that while Thomas was performing the operation, she refused to go into the room. She claims that the only information she had on the procedure itself was what she was able to hear through the wall or the door. Because she wouldn't go in the room. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. When she was asked what she had heard, Hattie stated that she could only hear moans coming from Mary Ann, and the doctor didn't say anything. And she heard the word bird because bird is the word B -b -b bird 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 go ahead i'm sorry you scare me i scare myself um let's see hattie finished her statement by saying that thomas finished performing the surgery and left the residence after he left marianne's condition continued to get worse until she finally succumbed to death at approximately 6 a.m on friday morning see <laughs> They should have been smart like the rest of our killers, chopped her up and got rid of the body. Yeah. Oh, you gave me a bad look. No, no I was thinking. That's the smartest thing to do. Let me alone. I was thinking. If there's no body there and nobody's smelling the body, you can just tell them, hey, what happened to Mary Ann? And she ran off with Gilligan and they're gone now. And they're, oh, okay. And then no worse for wear. Okay. Gilligan. The skipper, too. Millionaire and his and wife. His wife. The movie star, the, the professor, professor and Marianne. 
here on Gilligan's Island. Hey, we were actually almost in harmony. Almost, time. yeah. As you can imagine, when Thomas was interrogated, his version of the events was completely different from Hattie's. Go figure. Then he yelled out, you're only trying to arrest because I'm Scottish. <laughs> no. According to his statements, Hattie is the one that asked him to go over to her residence to take care of an ailing woman. Thomas said that when he arrived at Hattie's, Mary Ann was already in a bad state and there was a three-month child dead on the bed. Okay. Thomas stated that Hattie admitted to him that she had performed the abortion procedure herself with a catheter and bent wires. Damn. Um... And one of those actually perforated the wound. In other words, he's saying that Hattie botched the operation by tearing or puncturing tissue that should have remained intact. Okay? See, that's fucked up because, and I'm being serious with this one here, because Hattie's black. It's the 1800s. Oh, yeah. Not totally. the best of times for the African Americans. Right. And Not, especially in Chicago. You're in Chicago. Just saying, like, the way I understand it is that the cops can see a white guy bash somebody's head in, and he can turn around and say, no, it wasn't me, it was that black guy right there. But, hey, get the black guy. Obviously, he did it. It can't be this guy. Yeah, totally. That's fucked up, man. Yeah. Uh, dry, uh, walking while black. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Just don't run underneath yeah. the fucking carriage. Not buses, because, you know, it's 1800s. So, under the yeah. carriage, clip clop, clip clop. <laughs> so, Thomas also constantly maintained that he kept records of what medication he prescribed for Marianne to use. According to the drugs and dosages he wrote prescriptions for would have been within the medical guidelines to treat a patient of her stature. Um, he said that the druggist or pharmacist would be able to validate his statements regarding the prescriptions he had written. Now, um, when it came down to prosecuting Thomas for Marianne's death... They said he was innocent, and then they fucking arrested the poor black lady is what they did. They encountered a few problems. Yeah, he's white. For instance, the press was stating there was nothing to prove whether or not um, an abortion had even taken place. Um, there was This was despite the fact that the medical examiner concluded there was no doubt she had been pregnant. You know... It was aliens. Yeah. They came took the baby. They took the baby. So law enforcement officials also had a difficult time trying to figure which account was more truthful, Thomas's or Hattie's, especially since they were so completely different. When well, it, take a guess at whose side they took. I'm going to take a guess at that. Well, when, he, when it came to evidence, they couldn't find anything that pointed the finger at the doctor. Therefore, he managed to elude the courtroom that time, but it wouldn't be long before his medical practice was brought into question again. Yeah, because he got away with it once. We've, we've seen that time and time again with almost every killer. Like, oh, yeah. Once they get away with it once, with the exception of Carol Cole, because Carol Cole got away with it, but he was sitting there going, dude, no, I'm right fucking here. I'm your dude. And they're all step out of the way. You're not the guy. But um, with the exception of Carol Cole, all of them, the second they get away with it, then they get all cocky. Like, <laughs> look at me. Oh, yeah. Man. Like Jerry Brudos. And, oh. Yeah, you know. And yep, yep. freaking the guy I'm finishing up on Friday, Wesley Allen Dodd. Um, so 
By December of 1880, Thomas had even more suspicion cast towards him in regards to another patient by the name of Miss Ellen Stack. Shut up, Scott. Apparently, Stack. Do you have pictures of her? No. I might. I don't. Sexy. Let me see. I don't have it right here. Do you have Um, pictures of her? Look up Thomas Cream and see. Go to Murderpedia. I think there's a photo gallery. You might be able to find. Huh? Nothing. Sick bastard. Um, apparently she was taking pills she thought were for birth control when she said the pills she had, oh, when she died, excuse me, the pills. I thought birth control wasn't invented until the 60s or something. Am I wrong? I, you know what? I don't know. No, no, keep going. Just do your thing. I'm going to look that up real fast. Yeah, because the pills she had been ingesting were actually strychnine. Oh. Yeah, he didn't you know use Thank you, arsenic. Thomas. Thank you. You actually used strychnine. Yeah. Instead of fucking arsenic. Thank you, sir. You. You are truly a hero. This Bud Light's for you. This Bud Light's for you, killer doctor. Real man of murder. Only you, Dr. Cream, could feed someone strychnine and tell them it's for birth control. No babies for you. So crack open a coal Bud Light, you murderer of the maidens. Because you deserve it. You're weird. Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. See, I could do fucking commercials for Bud Light. We should do for Budweiser. They should be paying us for commercials. They should be. Um, according to report, because we all know our listeners are either <laughs> drunk or stoned. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. We're a bunch of fucking alcoholics, and it's yeah. great. Um, according to reports, Thomas was the one who made the pills from chemicals he had in his possession. And despite that, he made an effort to try and blackmail the pharmacist who was responsible for filling Ellen's prescriptions. Even so, Thomas was never charged for murder, nor was he picked up for extortion. Can I throw in our birth control thing? Because we're talking the 1850s and this yeah. is having a problem with it. Gregory Pincus and John Rock, with help from the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, developed the first birth control pills in the 1950s, which became publicly available in the 1960s. This is why I was what, confused. Try Canada, though. Oh, no, this was Chicago. Never mind. I, I, put, I put when it was invented. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty well anywhere. Yeah. So that's why I'm having a problem. We're talking like he's in, okay, let's just say he's 50, so that's early 1900s. Yeah. He wasn't 100 when he was doing this. See, and I saw that snippet about the birth control in like three different articles. Okay, wait a minute. Hold on. Was birth control available? In 1880. Oh, here we go. With the act of pulling out before ejaculation was the most accessible form of birth control in the 1800s. Since it didn't cost a thing, it can be highly effective... If used correctly. No, I can't. And it was, in fact, effective for some people at the time. That's what it says for the birth control. So pretty much. It's the pull-out method. You, you pull out and you fucking spray her down. And what? And it says like squirt her in the eye or anything. Or in the ear. It's just you pull out and fucking. Just all over her face and her chest. and Or her back. Oh, yeah. There's that. I'm not saying like shoot the cat or anything. Your poor kitty. <laughs> anyway, see, no, no, honestly, that's, that's why I was a little, a little bit confused because we're talking like somebody who's born in 1850. Yeah, 
And this was 1880 when he supposedly... Yeah, so he's like fucking 70 years away Yeah. from birth control even starting to be developed. And what, like 80 years away from it being available. Right. So how the fuck is she taking anything for birth control? I was, oh yeah, go ahead. I don't know. Thomas wasn't so lucky the next time. During the summer of 1881, local headlines regarding Daniel Stott's death couldn't be printed fast enough. Um, Daniel was married to a woman by the name of Julia Abby Stott, and together they had a residence in Boone County, Illinois, which is approximately 77 miles west of Chicago via I-90. Oh, okay. Yeah. Daniel died on July 14th, 1881, and his cause of death was the result of strychnine poisoning. However, according to the New York Daily News, the medical pathologist gave an alternative cause of death. He said on June 12th, just 20 minutes after swallowing a dose of Cream's medicine, shut up, Daniel Stott calling it that. Yeah, Daniel Stott suffered a violent fit and fell back dead. The coroner called his passing natural death, and he um. And the certificate reads epilepsy. Hmm. Epilepsy, strychnine, same thing. Yeah. Same, same. Same, same. According to reports, Daniel's funeral was a spectacular event the whole town attended. When the newspapers wrote about the service later, they described his widow, Julia, as, quote, 35 years of age, very delicate looking, and very plain spoken. They went on to say that she was... Also wearing heavy mourning. I'm sure that's the clothing that they wore when they were mourning their loved ones. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. And wet copiously. Wow. They actually use the word copious? They use the word copiously. Wow. You don't hear that word very often anymore. You don't. Um, yeah, because I quoted it word for word. That might have been everything people <laughs> would have said when it came to Daniel's death. However... A short time later, it became public knowledge that Thomas and Julia had been having an illicit affair as well. Okay, look. Once again, he's just trying to get himself some pussy, okay? But she's a married woman of and social stature, social status, too, because, you know. Do you know how many married women of social, great social status I have banged in their own beds? And then their husband comes walking in, and you pretend like you're gay? What? I'm going to stop it. I'm just doing her hair. Jesus Christ, I'm waxing her. <laughs> Have you ever had a boyfriend or husband walk in on you? I've had a dad walk in on me. I've never been so scared in my life. Mm. So I was in high that school. Pi- that would have scared the piss out of me, too. I'm in high school, right? Yeah. And I'm up in this chick's room, and we're getting it on. And her dad wasn't supposed to be home for like three or four hours, and my 76 Camaro was parked on the street. Okay. And then I hear the door slam. And he's calling for it. I know that's got something. Oh, fuck. This dude was big. He was like, I'm not kidding. Like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, built like a fucking tank. Wow. It's a two-story house. Like a Mack truck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm out her window putting my underwear on, you know, out in public, trying to get, jumped off her roof and ran down the street. And I left my car behind. So that night, I'm peeking down her street. And that motherfucker waited. Did he really? <laughs> he was out on that porch just sitting there on... Arms crossed. I don't think he moved at 
fucking all. Once he realized I was ghost, he sat out on the porch and waited for me to come back. He was going to murder me. Like, yeah. I'm pretty sure. I'm not even kidding. I don't think it would have been like, I'm going to beat your ass or, or we're going to have a nice talking. I think that I would become a missing person on a milk carton. Yeah, you probably would have. And that's yeah. back when they did that. Yeah, I would have been on a milk carton. Have you seen this child? And he'd be looking at it going, oh, I know where that motherfucker is. Ain't touching my daughter no more. Yeah. Okay, so check this out. Um, We got 15. Okay. Okay. Not only were the two having extramarital relations, but Thomas had also managed to implicate himself when it came to Daniel's death. Um, Let me go ahead and... Was it like a threesome? No. 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 Okay. Okay. So, um, the hell did I go? Oh, there we go. Um, not long after Daniel's funeral services, Thomas started sending out a bunch of letters and telegrams. In these, the doctor stated the medication that Daniel had been taking was messed with and the man had been poisoned. Um, the authorities wanted to test the medication that was left after Daniel's death to see if it contained a poison additive, and apparently to perform this test, this is fucked up, they used a dog. They Aww. gave the medication to a dog. It didn't take long for the dog to die after ingesting the drugs, so law That's enforcement upsetting. officials made a decision to exhume Daniel's body and test his remains. No, I think that we should seriously fucking have killed the cops. You don't do that to dogs, I know, man. dude. They're not got, like lab I got, rats. I got my best friend sitting next to me right now, my ghosty poo. Yeah, he couldn't wait to get out of the house this morning and jump in the car. Because <laughs> him and I haven't seen each other in forever. I know. Um, okay. Once the exhumation was complete, a pathologist took the contents of Daniel's stomach and had the substance tested. Um, it didn't take them long to find out that even after death, there was enough strychnine left in his tissues to kill three healthy men. Holy shit. Yeah. That's a lot of fucking strychnine. No shit, man. Yeah. Damn, hey, man, go big or go home. Right? Needless to say, the authorities focused their attention on Thomas. In an effort to get himself out of trouble, the doctor thought it was a good idea to try and blackmail the druggist. However, that proved ineffective. So the doctor wrote a letter to the coroner. In that letter, Thomas stated the pharmacist was responsible for Daniel's death due to his dispensing errors. You know, his med errors, I guess. That tactic failed as well. In my head, this is what I see. Hey, the the, the, the druggist did it, and the druggist just looking up. Nah. <laughs> yeah, no. Try no we don't think he did it either. We think you're full of shit there, Mr. You know, cream in my pants. Um, yeah, that's what I think. Creamy filling. Um, <laughs> hey, that's what he was giving to that guy's wife. I know. The hot Twinkie cream injection. Anyways, so that tactic failed as well. It wasn't long before the authorities went and arrested Thomas as well as Julia. Uh, both of them were being charged with murder. However, Julia wasn't going down quietly. She quickly turned on her lover and took a deal to save her skin. The deal meant she had to testify against Thomas at trial, and she had no problem saying he was the only person responsible. See, and that's karma right there, because think about what he did to, uh, I just forgot her name, the, the black lady. The, yeah, Hattie. Hattie. He did the same thing to her, going, it wasn't me, it was the Negro over here. 
you know, throwing her under the bus at a time that's not good for African Americans. Right. You know, hey, that's fucking what goes around comes around. Dude deserved it. Oh yeah, I agree with you. Um hang on. Uh oh, there I was on the wrong page. Okay. Uh Julia said, and I'm quoting, there was something funny about the last prescription. Dr. Cream said to me. Don't have this filled at the first drugstore you come to. It should be filled exactly right. Uh, take it down to Buck and Rainers here in the city because they will be responsible in case anything should go wrong. Okay. Yeah. So when Julia testified against him in court, Thomas was the only one to face murder charges. Um, that This is what the Stockton, California Daily Evening Herald had to say about the case. Dr. Cream and Mrs. Stott were in love at Belvedere, Illinois, and they concocted a peculiar plan for murdering the woman's husband safely. Stott being ill, the doctor was called in to attend him. A prescription containing a safe amount of strychnine was sent to a druggist, and when the medicine came, a large quantity of the poison was added. Um, It calculated, calculated that Stott's death would at once be traced to the strychnine and that its presence in a fatal proportion would be ascribed to a blunder by the druggist. The murderers would probably never have been detected if the woman had not distrusted her partner. Okay, so hold on. I just looked up something, and I know that we're running out of time. But, because and this one's important. I looked up if strychnine had any medical uses. Mm-hmm. So as we know, strychnine was first introduced as a rodent... Um, a, ro- a rodent killer in the, ni- in the 1540s. Okay. In subsequent centuries, was used medically as a cardiac, respiratory, and digestive stimulant, um, as an anaphylactic, and as an antidote for barbiturate and opioid overdoses. So it did actually have a medical use. So they give you a poison to um, counteract an opiate. Uh, that's what it says. That's what Google wow. says. <clears throat> Which Instead I, of the needle straight to the heart of adrenaline. Well, I don't think that they did that back in the 1800s. Yeah, I don't think so either. Like Pulp Fiction. Yeah, they didn't Pulp Fiction anybody back nope. then. So when she heard that he had himself announced that death was the result of poisoning, she mistakenly inferred that he meant to fix the crimes upon her, and she hastened to make a statement in culpitating culp- him. So, um, since the prosecutors had a star witness when it came to Julia, the court proceedings didn't go all that well for Thomas. Um, While she was on the stand giving her testimony, she stated she and Thomas had more plans after Daniel's death. According to her, that was when she was supposed to sign a power of attorney over to Thomas. And apparently, if Julia had given him her power of attorney he would then be able to turn around and sue the pharmacy, Buck and Rainers, for a total of $10,000 in damages for, quote, improper preparation of medication. That is equivalent to $264,959 today. Oh, okay. Decent haul. Yeah. However, instead of cashing a check at the bank, Thomas was found guilty of murder. Um, after Thomas was convicted, Judge Kellum set forth his sentence 
And at the time, he received a life sentence to be served at Joliet Prison, located in Illinois. As part of the sentence, the judge also ordered that every year Thomas was in prison, he would be mandated to spend one day locked in a solitary confinement cell, which I didn't understand why that was. Yeah, that's kind of, that's a little bizarre. Yeah. So despite... um, being convicted of murder and sentenced to spend the rest of his life in prison, Thomas was barely incarcerated for 10 years before he was released in July of 1891. According to official records, then-Governor Joseph W. Pfeiffer chose to commute the doctor's prison sentence. However, unofficial allegations imply that Thomas's father paid approximately $5,000 in bribes Two politicians, today that would be equivalent to approximately 148494 uh, Once the bribes were given, one of Thomas's brothers went and begged the governor to give his poor brother leniency. No matter what transpired to bring about Governor Pfeiffer's decision, the fact remains Thomas's sentence was officially reduced and he was released from prison without any contingencies in place. Jesus Christ. That's what I was saying before, though. And you would think that we would have evolved as people. No, but this is 1850, so. But but it happens to this day. That's true. Money determines if you're going to spend a little time in jail. Oh, yeah. Or a lot of time. Yeah. True. And, I mean, if you know the prison system back then, I mean, they were some shady fuckers. Because they were all privately maintained. They weren't state regulated right exactly you know so it's pretty easy to give somebody a few bucks and go hey you know okay yeah he's in solitary confinement of course he's being punished but maybe not so much yeah maybe not maybe i'll give him a tv <laughs> i don't think they had TVs i know they then. didn't but whatever they had like smoke signals and radios and fucking. did I they have know. radios back in 1850 now I look that shit i know As soon as Thomas was released from Joliet, he decided it was time to leave the United States. He relocated to Canada for a short period of time before moving on to England. His father died right before he was released, so he took his inheritance and used it to fund his relocation efforts. Now, Thomas arrived in London, England on October 1st, 1991, and From then on, he changed his name to Thomas Neal, completely dropping his surname Cream. Uh, I would, too. (laughs) I know. He immediately settled into lodgings at 103 Lambeth Lambeth Palace Road in the town of Lambeth. And during that time period, Lambeth was ripe with poverty, prostitution, and petty criminals. The three Ps. Perfect for him. Yeah. I know, right? Um, even before being released from prison, Thomas had begun experiencing vision problems. So when he arrived in Lambeth, he went to see an optician by the name of James Atchison. And Dr. Atchison diagnosed Thomas with a vision imbalance called extreme hypermyopia, which I'll explain in a minute, and gave him a prescription for thick corrective lenses. Now, extreme hypermyopia is a severe case of nearsightedness. It's not classified as an eye disease, but an optical error. Um, it occurs when the cornea focuses light that enters the eye at a point behind the retina, and this causes a person to have significantly blurred vision without the use of corrective lenses. Oh, okay. So I looked up the radio deal, right? Yeah. 
Thank you, Google. Even after the development of the radio in the late 1800s, it took many years before radios went mainstream and became a household fixture. While, we're, while we may not know with certainty who put together the first radio device, we do know that in 1893, the inventor Nikolai Tesla demonstrated a wireless radio. Oh, so it's like two years after he got out of prison. Yeah. So, there you go. There you have it. Um, so now that Thomas had relocated and acquired his sporty new spectacles, one would think he'd change his behavior. Well, those who thought that would be wrong. Um, after all, we're featuring him today for a reason. It didn't take long for the people who were associated with the man to start dropping like flies. Um, the first person who fell victim to Thomas was young Ellen Donworth. Uh, the 19-year-old went by the name Nellie, and she was a prostitute in Lambeth. Wait a minute, hold on. Did you say Donworth or Dongworth? Don, D-O-N. Oh, I was going to say. W-O-R-T-H. She's a hooker with the name of Dongworth. That's like, <laughs> holy that shit. That is like that's, prophetic, isn't it? <laughs> that's fucking, that is some porno action shit going on right there. She should be making porn. That's the perfect name. Well, if they had video cameras back then, she probably would have been. Dongworth and Cherry Love in... I love my dong. Okay, you're giving me that. Look. Go ahead. I I just shake my head in wonder now. Um, <laughs> let's see here. Where was? Oh, apparently on October thirteenth, eighteen ninety one, Thomas offered to buy Nellie a drink, and she readily accepted. Nobody thought anything about it until the next morning when she became violently ill. Nellie's condition went from bad to worse when she died a short three days later. Her cause of death was the result of strychnine poisoning. Hmm. Yeah. That's not suspicious. Yeah. That's fine. Well, check this out. During the inquest into her death, Thomas wrote the medical examiner a letter stating he could provide the name of the person responsible for the murder. However, he wanted something in return, a reward in the amount of 300,000 British pounds. Today, that's Jesus. equivalent to thirty-nine million seven hundred thirteen thousand six hundred fifty-three British pounds, and that's equivalent in U.S. dollars to fifty-three million seven hundred eighty-three seven hundred eighty-three thousand one hundred fifty-nine. Okay, stop right there. Obviously, the good doctor went full-on retarded in prison because, as we've said before, people view hookers as the throwaway people. Yeah, so nobody's going to give you a reward for, yeah. Even today, uh -huh. if you went in and said, hey, I can show you who's killed three hookers, but I want $53 million, they're going to look at you and go, sir, you're obviously mentally disturbed. The <laughs> fuck out of here before you become prime suspect number one. Yeah. So, um... Around the same time Thomas wrote that letter to the coroner, he tried to blackmail a guy by the name of W.F.D. Smith. Smith was the proprietor of W.H. Smith Bookstalls, and apparently Thomas accused him of murdering Nellie and said he would keep the information to himself for a fee. Um, within a matter of days, on, July, on October 20th, Thomas had another encounter Um and another counter, this one with Matilda Clover. 
Clover, excuse me. Now, Matilda was another prostitute from the area, and a couple of hours after meeting with Thomas, she became violently ill, and she was found dead the following morning. At first, her cause of death was attributed to her having drink, uh, horrible, heavy drinking habits. Now, I have a little side note here. Um, even though Matilda was a heavy alcoholic, she was no match for Jane Cakebread. That's the chick's name. Jane was a poor cake bread. Cake bread. Wow. Yeah. Jane was a poor. That's not real. I'm sorry. That's not a real fucking name. Nobody names. Nobody in the history of anything has a name like fucking cake bread. That's like saying cupcake cake. Or, you know, my last name is like wheat bread. That's stupid. Nobody has that last name. It's not a real thing. Well, there's cake bread sellers in Napa Valley. Yeah. They probably just said, hey, that's a great name for a seller. Pretty sure that's nobody's real fucking last name. Yeah. Okay. Well, anywho. Cake bread Sauvignon Blanc. 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 That's what I I know I meant. I knew what I said, and I knew what I had to correct it, and I did, and you still correct me. I have to. It's my job. And speaking to your fucking mic. I am speaking into my mic. I just love doing that to you. I know, because it's not rage. It's irritation. (laughs) Now, anyways, Jane was a poor homeless woman in the 1800s who, at the time was considered to be, quote, the drunkest woman in the world. She earned this title because she broke all sorts of records when it came to being arrested. Of the numerous times Jane was arrested, she was convicted an astonishing 281 times for drunkenness charges. Oh, my God. That's the perfect woman for Yeah. She, shit. I'm in she, love. She was one of the first people to be well-documented for their quote, revolving door lifestyle. She went from court to prison, from prison to the streets, and from the streets back to court again in a vicious cycle. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, baby. You sound hot. Yeah. Too bad you're, like, deceased now, huh? I Well. Do you have any relatives? I could be digging up an old friend. Ew, Scott. What? You are not a necro. Anymore. And you're not a necromancer, so you can't bring him back to life either. So I don't know, man. You, you put some goddamn magic spell at the beginning of this whole goddamn thing. So he graduated in, I don't know, like, Wingardium Leviosa, Burbunius, <laughs> and then a fucking demon appeared. <laughs> Anywho, um, when it came to Matilda's case, Thomas again tried to involve himself. This time, he sent a note to Dr. William Broadbent. Broadbent was a highly respected neurologist who was considered the leading British authority in both the cardiology and neurology field of medicine. Um, In this missive, um, Thomas stated that Dr. Broadbent was responsible for poisoning Matilda. However, according to Thomas's note, he would be willing to keep the information to himself if the respected doctor paid him a large sum of money. Rather than give in to the, the blackmail demands, Dr. Broadbent forwarded the blackmail demand to Scotland Yard. However, the mysterious note wasn't signed with Dr. Thomas Neal's name. It was signed only Malone. Malone. Post Malone. No, Malone. (laughs) (laughs) What, he had lame-ass fucking tattoos on his face? (laughs) Post Malone's weird. Very. Um, After poisoning Matilda, Thomas tried to poison another woman by the name of Louise Harris Harvey. She went by the name Lou, and she met with Thomas at the 
Alhambra Theater. Um, later, she would describe him as, quote, wearing a black top coat, a hard felt hat, and a black suit of clothes. He had an old-fashioned gold watch and more spectacles. And wore spectacles. He had no beard, but wore a mustache. Mustache. He was a mustachioed man, <laughs> looking very dapper in his black suit. Yeah, according to Lou's testimony at trial, Thomas told her she had some spots on her forehead that concerned him. However, to clear them up, all she had to do was take the medicine he was giving her. Then he handed her some pills. She stated that the encounter didn't sit well with her, and she became suspicious of the man. However, instead of having the pills tested to see what they contained, she said that she threw them away by tossing them in the River Thames. Thames. Thames? Thames. This is how the whole encounter happened, according to an article in a local newspaper. Now... He, referring to Dr. Thomas Neal, he took two pills out of his waistcoat pocket. They were wrapped in tissue paper and were long, rather narrower at one end than the other. It was rather dark, but they seemed to be of a light color. He asked her to swallow them one by one and not to bite them. Um, He put them into her right hand. She pretended to take them and pass them into her left hand. He then asked her to show her right hand and she showed it, showed him it was empty. And then asked, then he asked to see her left hand in which the pills were and she threw them away. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, the next two individuals that fell victim to Thomas poisoning were all both prostitutes again from Lambeth on April 10th. 1892, Thomas accompanied 21-year-old Alice Marsh and her 18-year-old roommate, um, Emma Shrivel. <laughs> I ain't lying. Shriveled up cream there. Back, <laughs> back to their flat. Uh, once they arrived, Thomas offered each of them a bottle of Guinness. Um, a short time after they finished their drinks, he got up and left, according to him. The next morning, a neighbor went rushing over to the residence of the girls when they heard Alice screaming. Uh, once the doctor arrived to offer her assistance, uh, oh no, once the neighbor arrived, sorry, Alice couldn't stop screaming in agony as she was writhing around on the floor. Within minutes, Emma began screaming in pain as well. Um, the neighbor immediately sent someone to go find a doctor, and once the doctor arrived, they were both given an emetic or something to induce vomiting. A short time later, Alice was able to tell the neighbor about Thomas, what he had given them, and what she had consumed. Um, Both of the women were still in excruciating pain, so they were transported to St. Thomas's Hospital to be treated. Unfortunately, Alice died en route to the hospital, and Emma succumbed to the effects of the poisoning the following day. So... um, Where was I? Oh, it didn't take long for the rumors to start flying about all the recent poisonings and citizens around London were up in arms about it. Their unrest grew even greater when local newspapers began writing articles about, quote, the Lambeth Poisoner. One article printed in London's Daily News reported, the police at Scotland Yard are still pursuing their inquiries into the recent cases of fatal poisoning of women in the neighborhood of Lambeth. 
with a view to establishing a connection between the suspected person against whom the police hold a warrant. An experienced inspector of Scotland Yard, um, where was I? Oh, has the matter in hand, and he is working with the aid of the local police and his own assistance to complete the web of evidence he is constructing in support of the case against the suspect. From the accounts which the police have received from various quarters concerning the individuals there is every reason to believe that the opinion of the detectives is correct that he is suffering from a peculiar form of mental derangement, which finds exercise in a desire to take away life. Um, there is no other motive attributed to the cruel poisoning of Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel and Del Ellen Donworth. And as the history of Whitechapel murders show, um, the indulgence of this homicidal tendency upon women is a peculiar, a peculiar, I can't even say it. Lurly. <laughs> For some reason, I cannot form the word. Um, defenseless position is not singular to the Lambeth poisoner. Yeah. They'll find out something here next week. But um, I think we should probably wrap it up because, yeah. Well, you have more on this dude. I do. You want me to keep going? You can wrap it up if you want. I don't Well, I can keep going. I only have like three pages left. Do your thing, mama. Oh, maybe I have five pages left. But anyway. oh, you want to do five pages next week then? No, it's fine. All right. Okay, so. Do you, do you think I'm going to make myself a sandwich because I haven't eaten yet today? I haven't either. I was going to eat the dog, but. Okay, don't eat my dog. She looks chewy. Uh, during the police investigations, the letters Thomas wrote in an attempt to blackmail various individuals are what turned the attention of the detectives on him. To him, excuse me. When the authorities looked at the letters, they were quickly able to determine that the person, excuse me, receiving the letters was not the one who administered the poison. Um... They also realized that whoever was writing the missives knew things about each of the cases that weren't public knowledge. For example, up until that point, everyone attributed Matilda's death to her heavy drinking habits. However, the letter Thomas sent about her, about her stated she was actually murdered. That's what helped the investigators determine that the person who was, a, who was authoring the notes was, in fact, the Lambeth Poisoner. Um... Reports indicate that Thomas alleged to a friend of his that all four women had been poisoned by a medical student. And the medical student's name was W.J. Harper, and the two of them were lodging together at the same residence. As a matter of fact, Thomas tried to shift suspicion onto the other guy by sending one of his accusatory notes to Harper's father. who And then he signed that note, uh, William H. Murray. Um then, I don't know how this came about, but uh, a tr uh, London tourist who happened to be a policeman from New York City, you know, was touring London. And Thomas is the one who met with him. And apparently the visiting officer read articles about the Lambeth Poisoner. And Thomas thought he'd help the guy out by giving him a death tour of sorts. He offered to take the man around to the different places each victim lived. 
Um, later, after Thomas had given the American law enforcement official the grand tour, the visitor was talking to a British police officer, and during that conversation, the American happened to mention being given the tour by Thomas. Um, the British officer became curious about the information Thomas gave during the guided tour, so he began asking his new friend for details. He soon realized the doctor's detailed knowledge uh, regarding the cases was more than a little suspicious. Um, things got worse for Thomas when a decision was made by Scotland Yard to place him under surveillance. Um, almost as soon as the surveillance team was in place, law enforcement officials found out the man frequently sought out the company of prostitutes in the area. Um, Around the same time, the team was monitoring Thomas's whereabouts. Scotland Yard investigators reached out to the authorities in the United States. It didn't take long for them to receive information about Thomas's conviction for Daniel Stott's murder. And then they found out that he had served 10 years in prison. With all of the information they were able to gather, it wasn't a huge leap for the British police officials to make a realization. It was highly likely that Dr. Thomas Neal, the man they were investigating, and Dr. Thomas Neal Cream, the American convicted killer, were one in the same. Um, as it turns out, the accusatory letter Thomas had sent to the medical student Harper's father was his downfall. Um, on June 3rd, 1892, Thomas Neal was arrested. However, from the time the detectives slapped the cuffs on his wrist, Thomas kept insisting he wasn't Thomas Neal Cream. They had the wrong man, and he said he was only Thomas Neal. There must be some misunderstanding. You know, they always got the wrong man. You know that? <laughs> Scott's in the kitchen. He just said, mm-hmm. Um, within 10 days of being arrested, Thomas faced formal murder charges for the deaths of the four women. He was also looking at a charge of attempted murder because he tried to poison Lou. And then there were multiple charges for extortion in relation to the various notes he had written and mailed. Um, a formal inquest on Thomas's case was held in July of 1892. During the proceedings, Athelstan Braxton Hicks was tasked with reading a letter out loud, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, Braxton Hicks was a highly respected coroner in London and Surrey. He held the position for approximately 20 years in the late 19th century, and he earned the well-deserved nickname, quote, the child's corner, the children's corner, excuse me, due to his determined investigations surrounding suspicious deaths of local children. He was instrumental in investigations concerning the practice of baby farming and the dangers involved with life insurance policies that are placed on children. He was also the son of Dr. John Braxton Hicks, the renowned obstetrician from London for which the term Braxton Hicks was named after, you know, those pre-labor pains. Um, now, back to my regularly scheduled presentation. <laughs> Shut up, Scott. Um, Athelstan Braxton Hicks was responsible for reading a letter to the court that was allegedly written by the infamous Jack the Ripper. 
The letter stated adamantly that Thomas was completely innocent, and after Hicks was finished reading the missive, the entire courtroom burst into laughter, including Thomas. However, it wouldn't have been mattered what was written. The evidence the prosecutors presented during the inquest was overwhelmingly sufficient for the jury to um, proceed with a trial. Um, so his trial was put on the docket and scheduled to start in October. It began on October 17th and lasted only five days. The case presented by the prosecution team made it glaringly obvious that Thomas Neal Cream had committed the murders. The jury only had to deliberate Scott for 12 minutes. You know, back in the Victorian era, they were on it like Blue Bonnet. Because they did Amelia Dyer a couple of years later in four and a half. <laughs> um, before they found him guilty on all charges, the presiding judge, Lee Justice Henry Hawkins, handed down the sentence and ordered Thomas Neal Cream to hang for his crimes. He then told the condemned prisoner that in regards to his cold-blooded actions, quote, could be expiated or atoned for only by your death. Um, Thomas was executed less than one month later. I know. Why don't they do that here? On November 15th, 1892, the hanging took place at Newgate Prison, which is the same penitentiary Amelia Dyer's death sentence was carried out less than four years later. James Billington was the executing hangman in Great Britain from 1884 to 1901, so he was in charge of carrying out the execution process. Um... Now, there is, um, hang on, I, I think I'm going to skip this part. Um, yeah. Um, now, I want to take a moment to address one of the legends surrounding Dr. Thomas. Oh, thank you. You're like awesome, possum. Um. Let's see. Surrounding Dr. Thomas Neal Cream's execution. According to this legend, as Thomas was standing on the gallows waiting for the trap door to spring, he decided to speak some last words. Um, hang on. I hate it when I mistype something and then I have to find read it again. Okay. Uh, he decided to speak some last words. The executing hangman, James Billington, asked the prisoner if he had any last words. After being met with an initial silence, which he assumed meant no, he proceeded to reach for the lever. Um, then two things happened simultaneously. As Billington pulled the lever to spring the hatch, Thomas began speaking. Billington later reported that Thomas said, I am dead. I'm pretty sure that's how it went, because... He couldn't finish the sentence, the entire sentence. The trap door burst open <laughs> and his sentence trailed off as he was left dangling. Um, whether or not Thomas really said those particular words doesn't seem to matter to some people. They're convinced he did, and therefore, in his grandiose form, Thomas took the last breath he ever had to confess to being the most notoriously elusive serial killer in the history of Great Britain, Jack the Ripper. Now, after all, both killers dip 
from the same victim pool, local prostitutes, not to mention they haunted the, no, they haunted the same area, Whitechapel, London, England. However, that might be where the similarity ends, which I find out later it, that's not, there's more. Um, now, there's two arguments here. Yes, he was, or no, he wasn't. I'm going to say all those opposed for now. Um, there are actually a couple of points that must be con- that one must contemplate before completely accepting the notion that Thomas Neil Cream and Jack the Ripper were one and the same. Um, let's see. First, the murders attributed to Jack the Ripper took place in 1888, according to. Prison records, Thomas was still serving a life sentence in Joliet, located in Illinois, for murdering Daniel Stott. According to the documented dates, this alone might be enough to convince somebody that Thomas was not Jack the Ripper, but I have something I want to add later. Um, The second point I want to bring up is take a look at the modus operandi for each series of murders. Jack the Ripper's MO was the almost complete polar opposite of uh, Dr. Thomas Neil Cream's MO. Thomas Neil Cream uh, would be classified as an indirect serial killer. His weapon of choice was poison, and as such, some of his victims expired while he wasn't even in their vicinity. Right. Okay. So Jack the Ripper would be classified as a hands on serial killer. And I don't mean just figuratively either. After his first brutal murder of a prostitute in the Whitechapel area, each subsequent attack only increased in terms of rage and violence. As a matter of fact, Mary Jane Kelly, the Ripper's last known victim, was so brutally attacked, people could hardly tell that the remains were those of a human. Um, and then, so with the progressive nature surrounding the act of committing serial murder, although possible, it is not moderately probable for the following to occur. A serial killer will develop his modus operandi to a point where he will continue to progress along the natural path of uh, the escalation of violence. Right. And then in the middle of his killing cycle, de-escalate to a less violent method of murder. I don't see that happening. I mean, why would you go from poisoning to strangulation back to poisoning? You wouldn't. Yeah. That's the whole point. None, None of our killers have ever done that. Yeah. Therefore, Therefore, it doesn't seem probable for Thomas's weapon of choice to start as poison, progress naturally along the evolutionary path of violence, to become more brutal and personal, and end by regressing back to the same type of poison he started the cycles with. Um, prior to being... Now, this is all those in favor of him being Jack the Ripper. Prior to Thomas being arrested and convicted of that first murder in the United States, it was established that, ta- that Thomas's family was considerably well-established financially um, for the time. Then we hear that his father allegedly paid a hefty chunk of cheddar in bribes. <laughs> yeah, like my street terms. Oh, yeah. And to get his son released early, we can probably also assume with considerable certainty that Thomas had amassed some independent wealth from the success of his practice. Therefore, it's not beyond the scope of probability, knowing how prison systems were known to operate during that era, to make a few healthy assumptions. Uh, The first assumption, what the hell? Oh, I did that wrong, sorry. Uh, The first assumption uh, being that Thomas had a means 
of getting his hands on a significant amount of fundage and to use to his advantage. The amount and availability only increased after his father died and he inherited even more financial stability. Um, Along those same lines, it's not beyond all probability that Thomas used a portion of his finances to procure an early release from his jailers or perhaps the alleged $5,000 his father paid out in bribes secured his release from corrupt prison officials and political representatives left, and then that left the governor no other choice but to officially commute his license. Because they're saying he was out before the sentence was commuted. Right. After all, commuting Thomas's sentence covered everybody's ass and would explain why he was being seen in the community again. If that happened, then he very well could have been out enough time to make his way to the UK and set up shop to become Jack the Ripper. There's also another probable theory floating around that Thomas never actually served any time in prison. This theory suggests that he and his family pulled together enough finances to pay a doppelganger to do his time for him. Mm, There have been several murder cases in which the prosecution won their argument with only highly circumstantial evidence. We see it a lot. Um, So with that in mind, I would be remiss if I didn't give you the similarities in the circumstantial evidence. Um, Thomas and the Ripper utilized the same victim pool, London women working in the sex industry. The detectives then and now have long held the belief that the Ripper had extensive medical training. Keep in mind that, Thomas was a certified physician and a certified surgeon, so he would have known how to vivisect people. Um, both Thomas and the Ripper wrote letters to others. In those letters, they talked about the crimes they had committed. Both Thomas and the Ripper were described as fashionable. Each was known to have a mustache, current with the Victorian era, and their clothes were described as a higher class than a street thug. Um the Ripper was believed to sport an elegantly expensive watch and wear a horseshoe lapel pin. Thomas also had a more elaborate watch than the average male citizen during that time, and he wore a horseshoe lapel pin. Why are you pointing at your boobs? You're weird. Okay, now, I do have... Um, uh, uh, let's. I'm going to say, you know, I'm not sure I even believe that Thomas uttered those words at all. Um, after all, there were other people present for the execution, one of which was the prison chaplain. And of the p- other people in attendance, they either didn't hear Thomas speak or they couldn't recall what he had said. But that could have been it. I mean, you've got a crowd of people. No, there was nobody in there to watch it. They, they didn't allow oh. the press or anybody in to watch it. There My was bad. only prison officials. All right. Yeah, I didn't get into that part, but yeah. Um, let's see. <sighs> one would assume that had it been such a monumental statement as that, at least one other attendee would have documented it. Um, however, let's say for argument's sake that he said those exact words specifically. I wouldn't put it past his ego for him to want to take credit for the most notorious unsolved murder case in the history of history. Ever. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, especially if he were to make the confession using the last breath he would ever have. What a way to go down in history. Hell, we're still talking about it over a century later on another continent. Um, I probably don't have to say this, 
But I do not believe Thomas Nell Cream was Jack the Ripper. There would be way more information pointing out the links between the two killers if it was even remote possibility. Here's what I know for sure. And he's not even listed as the official um, suspects on any of the Jack the Ripper sites. I don't think he was either. Yeah. That's just me. So. Um, it's because of the criminality. Yeah. You know what I mean? The, 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 the MO is totally different. So. Okay. So. Um, okay. Here's what I know for sure. Dr. Thomas Neal Cream held a position in the community that automatically invokes an inherent level of trust. Because how many other professions do you know of where just the title, in this case, doctor, means that almost everybody present, company excluded, because, you know, we don't trust anybody anymore, um, implicitly trust the holder of that title. Hookers. Sight unseen. Hookers. I trust hookers. But not doctors. Not trust doctors. Yeah. Well, we've been doing all these episodes, and I'm like... I'm sorry. Fucking hookers just seem more legit than fucking doctors do. Yeah. So we almost wrapping this one up. Yep. Oh. Anyways, I'm almost done. Um. Hang on. Okay. Even if he admitted, like some reports suggest that he had not only murdered in the instances that resulted in his guilty conviction. However, these reports also allege that Thomas admitted to several more murders that he hadn't even been charged with. If all this is true, we still may never know the true number of victims murdered by Thomas Neal Cream, especially since people haven't been including the patients who died due to complications from abortion procedures that were performed. All in all, the number of victims we can attribute to Thomas Nail Cream is about as mysterious as the real identity of Jack the Ripper. Now. It's me. Let me. I have one more brief thing to share with you. Um, it's a little slice of humor, which I hope will propel us into internet famous status. There we go. Yeah. I'm going to give you my version of Scott's I know exactly what happened. Maybe. Just maybe. Oh, now shit. hear me out go. before the judge before you judge theories, okay? Here we go. <laughs> okay. We all know that in times of great stress and fear, some people have been known to lose every ounce of control they have over their bodily functions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That happens to me. Yeah, you poop your pants a lot when you're scared. Oh, no, not when I'm scared. Just when I'm drinking. Uh, for some reason, I haven't put the correlation together, but it just seems like every time I have some of this ghost pepper sauce that's on my desk, that I get magma, liquid magma. Hot Nobody needs lava. to know about your shitting habits coming out of my backside, and I can't. I, I, I can't figure out why. I am so glad you don't send me poop pictures anymore. Oh, I'm gonna. Anyway, I, go ahead. Actually, I do kind of miss them, but um, let's see here. I know for a fact it also happens nearly every time someone passes into death. So maybe, just maybe, Thomas did utter some final words, but they weren't. I am death. Hear me out. Knowing he was going to die in a matter of seconds, Thomas was experiencing a tremendous amount of stress and fear, which would weaken the control he had of his lower organs. Then, in the exact moment the trapdoor sprung open, and as he was falling to his death, he lost the little control he had to hold on to him. I know exactly what Thomas said. Hear me out before you judge. 
Thomas's final words were, I am ejaculating. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, shit, but okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, instead of, instead of saying, I am Jack, he was saying, you know, he was expressing his liquids and, yeah. Oh, my God, that's fucking awesome. So we're done with Thomas. It was only one episode because, you know. Groovy, groovy. That works. Yeah. All right. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out the website at www.twistedbluellc.com. Click on that Amazon link. God damn it, please. It's been kind of sad this year. Check out our Patreon, too, by the way. Yeah. Help a brother out. Damn. Doesn't matter where you are in the world. Anywho, uh, check us out wherever you get your blogs. And if you want to become a podcaster, we're opening up that part of the business, too. Send us an email with your, with your idea to admin at twistedbluellc.com we'll review it and we'll we'll tell you what we think if it's if it's viable or not viable or, or whatever but we will get back to you we, we answer all of our emails and we might be a little slow but we do it I'm we slow. do it <laughs> mentally shut um, up dick <laughs> this show's copyright 2021 by twisted blue llc all rights reserved we will talk to you guys later bye 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 everybody